Well, we continue on our study through Philippians, and last week we gave a backstory of how Paul even ended up in Philippi. If we remember, Paul uh, was on a second missionary journey. He ends up um, in Philippi. He plants a church. Now let's um, speed it up. About 10 years later, Paul ends up in a, uh, in a Roman prison. And that's where we pick up the book of Philippians. So he's in a Roman prison. Now, I don't know if you've ever um, experienced this feeling of um, not being able to go where you would like to go. I guess wintertime is like that. I got my inoculation to that um, last week after the blizzard. Um, but I think of my life on deployment. When I was on deployment um, many times um, as a Marine, you would, you would be in a place and you had freedom of movement to go where you wanted to go on this deployed base, but you really didn't, weren't able to go where you wanted to go. And you, had, you could talk to people, but you really didn't want to talk to the people you wanted to talk to because there was the same people there. And anytime you had a visitor that would fly into this, a deployed base, you would just grab onto them and be like, hey, what's going on? Because they were a new person. And when they left, you felt kind of bummed out because you're like, oh, well, they just left. And it's interesting on deployment because you start to get very irritated after a while of seeing the same people and doing the same thing over and over and over again. And so Paul has an imprisonment similar to that, where he has, he's kind of on house arrest, but instead of being annoyed and irritated, he writes this joyful letter to the church at Philippi. And as we look at the book of Philippians, you're going to see this theme of joy. He uses the word joy or rejoice 15 times. But before we proceed, I have to really define what joy means, because the idea of joy for us um, has lost its meaning. Joy for Paul meant something entirely diff different. Joy for, for Paul meant this un uncontrolled good feeling that was produced by the Holy Spirit to reveal the loveliness and beauty of Christ that resonated in his entire soul. So when Paul uses the word joy, that's what he means. And as Christians, we have unexplainable joy in Christ. Today's message is titled, Prison is a Joy. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three aspects of the joy that we have in Christ. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Philippians 1. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for another day that we get to just plumb the depths of your word your inexhaustible word. And I pray that your spirit would illuminate your truth. So teach us the things that we do not know. Prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see is the joy of personhood in Christ. Philippians 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know a lot about a person on how they introduce themselves. I recently just moved into a new house, and I was meeting the neighbors, and it was interesting to see how people would introduce themselves. Some people would um, introduce themselves and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I've lived here for 20 years. Um, some people would say, I am Dr. So-and-so. And some people would say, hey, I am so-and-so, and my wife and my kids are this. 
are, are, these, are these folks? And so you kind of grasp and you're able to glean where they really get their identity from by how someone introduces themselves. And here we see that Paul addresses and introduces himself in this letter and, him, and Timothy as well as servants of Christ Jesus. Now the word servants in the Greek is a, the word doulos. And doulos in its literal translation is slave. And so what Paul is saying is, is he's making it clear. He's saying, I am a slave of Christ. Now, when we hear the word slave, we think of something different. We, we think of our, our history. We think of modern-day slavery. We think of the English slave trade. But the Philippians would have heard this totally different. Slavery looked different to them. It was just a social reality. As a matter of fact, um, slavery was quite, um, quite um, abounding. Slaves had, some slaves had actually more freedom than freed people in, those, in that community. So when they look at that, it's not as offensive to them as maybe it would be offensive to us in our context. And we see that for Paul, his identity and position in life was in relation to Christ. He is he's signifying that he is in the service of Christ and that he belongs to Christ. He's making it clear that everything he does is for, by, and in Christ. He is a slave of Christ. He's making it clear that his joy, the joy of his identity, was not rooted in where he was called to serve. I mean, he's in prison, but rooted in the joy of the master who calls him to serve. And as I started to think about this, I think Paul, as we look at this, as a slave of Christ, is the most freest man in Rome at this time. And probably freer than most of us in here. Because freedom really has nothing to do with geographical movement, does it? And I also find it interesting that the, the name of our church is Free Christian. But in order to be a free Christian, you must first become a slave of Christ. You also know a lot about a person with how they address others. You know their heart towards others. And Paul addresses the Philippians as God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Paul makes it clear that they are God's people, set apart for life in Christ. Not because they've earned it through holy living or they're perfect, but because of the alien righteousness that has been imputed to them through Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. The gospel says that we are sinners. That God created the world and it was good. Not only was it good, it was very good, but we messed things up. And sin has entered in the world. And there's a chasm between us and God. But instead of just leaving us in our plight, leaving us there, God sent his only begotten son God in the flesh to live a perfect and righteous life. And we put our faith and trust in Jesus. That righteousness is imputed to us. We put our faith that Christ not only died on the cross, but he was resurrected. That righteousness is imputed on us. And God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so therefore we are holy. And that's not even the end of the gospel. The gospel is, not only are we holy in Christ, but we're called to participate with God in the renewal and restoration of the earth. 
God started the earth with Eden, with this perfect Eden, and he'll end in a new creation, in a new Eden, through the new Adam of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The second thing we see is the joy of partnership in Christ. The joy of partnership in Christ. Verse 3 says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. We see that Paul had a partnership with the Philippians. That word partnership, koinonia, it's sometimes translated fellowship. And this partnership was intimate, and it was comprised of three major elements. First, it was comprised of intimate friendship. We see in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's go back to Acts. We remember the first day that he runs in, and he's in Philippi. He runs in, and he sees Lydia. And Lydia comes to know the gospel. She puts her faith in Christ. And then what does she do? She shows hospitality to Paul and the rest of the missionaries. and says, come, come stay with me. And then we remember the jailer who comes to faith in Christ while Paul is in jail. And what does the jailer do? He bounds the wounds of Paul and Silas. And so Paul says, from the very first day, we've had this partnership. We've had this intimate friendship. You've loved me in a way that is supernatural. We also see that their partnership was based off of a shared mission. The shared mission, they were partners in the gospel. It was all about the gospel. It was all about making Christ famous. In verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Paul was on his missionary journeys, and he was always in chains, or he was always in trouble, because he was preaching the gospel, and the gospel in and of itself is offensive. Because you're telling people, you're wrong, and there's one way to heaven, that's through Christ Jesus. And he's in trouble. And the Philippians stick with him. They're always there for him, either financially or emotionally. There's an African proverb that says, it is when you shake hands that you discover who is left-handed. Meaning that that events reveal people's true nature. I can remember growing up, I've shared this before, I've shared my story before, but... When I was a teenager, my dad got in a little bit of trouble, and he ended up going to prison for a while. And um, it was tough because there was people that we thought that really loved our family that all of a sudden were gone. And these weren't people like mere acquaintances. These are people we did stuff with. And it was hard. Yet, my dad had worked for this little company in this little family-owned company, and this company um, agreed to pay his wages while he was in prison so that my mom, my sister, and I uh, would not have to be evicted out of our home and it could stay a family. And that was partnership. 
That was true partnership. And their love spoke. Um, it was huge for us as a family. And the Philippians proved to be the real deal, despite Paul being in prison. I want you to understand this. We remember what I was talking about with the Philippians. The Philippians are Roman loyalists. They love being Roman citizens. And Paul's in a Roman prison. And they're supporting him. They're sending visitors to go visit him. They're constantly communicating with him. These people are taking a risk by the partnership they have with Paul. So the Philippians are, are the real deal. Finally, we see that there was this Christ-like affection. Verse 8 says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had real affection. There was this affection between the Philippians and Paul. Affection isn't just merely just I like you a lot. It's this, this exchange that encompasses your very being with somebody. And the interesting thing is Christ bonds hearts together that no sociologist or anthropologist can figure out. Have you ever met somebody that was a believer and you really didn't know them, but you had this bond with them? That's the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. You have this affection for someone. Why? Because they are in Christ. And so that's the kind of partnership that Paul had with the Philippians. We see that partnership in Christ is not privatized, it's not individualized, it's not sensationalized, and not customized. At the very core, it's about a shared, accountable, covenant life in Christ together. It's communal. And it has to be that way. As soon as it's individualized, whenever bad stuff starts to happen, people leave. There's a joint, there's this, this sense, this community sense in Christ. We are meant to live in community, and it's meant to be transparent. It requires time. It requires money. And it's, it's relational, it's missional, it's shared mission together. It's risky, it's messy, it's emotional. It's all of those things. And we, I think, have, have been sold this, this idea that Christian fellowship is going to coffee with someone who's a, a Christian, not talking about anything about Christ, just talking about normal stuff that you could talk to anyone with, and say, oh, we did fellowship together, we have partnership. At the very core of Christian fellowship and partnership is Christ. It's the gospel. It's living life together. It's centered on Christ, mediated by the Holy Spirit and the reality of the gospel. I'm not saying going to coffee is a bad thing. If you want to invite me to coffee, I'll go. We can talk about anything. So by all means, star I prefer Starbucks, by the way. So. <laughs> it's messy. I, let me just throw a disclaimer out here. Life in Christ together is messy. It's uncomfortable. It's intrusive even at times. But what's the result? Paul says it's unexplainable joy in Christ. It's unexplainable joy. So I'm going to encourage you 
to take your first step, if you have not taken your first step on this, to experience community Christ together. And I want to invite you to the meeting downstairs. We have our life group meeting downstairs. How do I get plugged in into, into a, a community of believers? How do I share this life? Come downstairs. Fill out your card. Because if you're not in community with other believers, then you're not experiencing the full joy in Christ that you possibly can. You're settling for less. Thirdly, we see that we see the joy of prayer in Christ. Now, when you really love someone, you want to serve them in any way that you can. And Paul loves the Philippians, but he's geographically restrained to a, 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 a prison in Rome. But he does the most powerful and loving thing that he could possibly do. He prays for them. He prays with thanksgiving. He prays with joy. In verse 9, we see, he starts off and he says, And this is my prayer. Now, he's going to outline some things later on in the book of Philippians that he's going to bring up more. So you're going to see some of these themes, these pra this prayers that he offers, these, these themes in his prayer. You're going to see these expounded upon a little bit more throughout the letter. So he says, this is my prayer. First, he says, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth and insight. He prays that they would grow in affection towards Christ and in one another. He wants their love to abound. He wants their love to grow. And he says, in the knowledge and depth and insight. The knowledge and the depth and insight is this experiential knowledge. It's not like, hey, I know I should do this. It's, no, it's experiencing one another. I have to ask, what keeps us from experiencing the love of Christ in community? What are the things? Like, let's just get real here. What are some of the things? Some of us, it's fear. Fear of meeting new people. We're like, I don't want to meet new people. People are weird, and I don't want to deal with that weirdness. It's a fear of conflict. Conflict always happens. I don't want to deal with it. Sometimes it's just busyness. I really don't have time for more people in my life. I got so much going on, the thought of getting together with another group of people just does not appeal to me. I would say all of those are, are probably things we struggle with, all of us or some of us on some, some level. But I would like to say, I think there's even a bigger problem here. I think we settle for way less in community. I think there's a facade of community that's been built up around social media. And I, don't, I want to preface this with, I am not um, against social media. But there's limitations to social media. But you get this sense that, oh, I have real community because I sent a Facebook post, I Instagrammed someone, I texted them, even though that's not social media. You get my point. There's this false intimacy. There's a facade. Even Mark Zuckerberg recently came out and said, for the ways my work was used to divide people rather than bring us together, I ask forgiveness. I will, work, I will work to do better. He recognizes, if you don't know who Mark Zuckerberg is, he made Facebook, by the way. He's saying, Facebook has been an utter failure of what I thought it was supposed to be. And I think he's just seeing this in the wrong way. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to be. Because it was never meant to be a replacement for true community. 
True community requires face-to-face interaction. It's, it, it has to do with proximity. It has to do with shared life together. It has to do with really weird emotional conversations that you don't want to have, but you have to have them. You know those ones that make you feel icky? I'm thinking about some of them right now. (laughs) But that's life in Christ, in community. And it produces this joy, this unexplainable joy. Secondly, he says, verse 10, he's praying so that they may be able to discern what is best. He prays that they'll be able to, to discern what really matters in life as it pertains to life in Christ. He's like, I want you to have this discernment to understand what really matters in life in Christ. We spend 90% on stuff that really doesn't matter. And Paul says, I don't want you to focus on that. I want you to focus on the things that matter as it pertains to life in Christ. That has to do with sometimes just forbearance, overlooking people's issues. I mean, we all have issues, right? Like, let's just get it out out of the way. All of us are annoying at some level to another person because we're people and we do annoying things. He says, just get over yourself. Let's discern past those things. Let's forbear with one another, show kindness for one another. And he says, I want you to focus on this life that you have, this life that is finite. We only have so many numbers of days. I mean, we're all going to die one day. We're not going to be on this earth one day. And he says, I want you to do with the, the time that God has given you, I want you to focus on life in Christ and do what matters. One author writes this. He says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that really don't matter. That's huge. That's what Paul's trying to say. I don't want to be, he's saying, I don't want you to be a church and individuals on your deathbed going, wow, I wasted a bunch of time doing things that really didn't matter. Thirdly, he prays, verse 11, that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He prays that they will do things through a life, with a life of fruitfulness, that brings glory to God, namely the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. He's saying, listen, I want you to love one another by utilizing the fruit of the Spirit. I want the fruit of the Spirit to just exude from your body because guess what? The world is watching. The world watches how we get along together. What's the, what's the one main reason, mainly, you know, one of the main reasons, at least I've encountered, why people don't want to come to church? They say it's because of the people at church. Why would I want to come to church? They don't treat any, anyone better than, than anyone else treats us. So why would I want to come to church? And that's Paul saying, no, you've got to live life together in the Spirit. So why is he praying for all this? Why is he praying for all this? He says, so they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Okay, wait. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What is he talking about? Does he say I have to be perfect? Do I have to be sinless? Is that what he's saying? Because that's impossible. That's not what he's saying. He'll explain that later. 
He's saying, I want you to pursue holiness in a way that is just aggressive. I want you to be blameless so when Christ comes, you are pursuing holiness. I want you to be made into the image of Christ. I want you to pursue Christ's likeness in your life. That's what I want. So when Christ come back, come, comes back, you have to give an account. You can give an account for the motivation of your heart and what you pursued in life. And we see at the very core of change that leads to joy in Christ is prayer. That's why he's praying. I'm reminded of the story of the Moravians, and I won't get into the, the story too much, but the Moravians was, in the 18th century was this, the, this band of interdenominational people that came together in Austria. When they came together to form a community, it was a disaster. They could not get over each other until finally they came together in prayer, and they started praying, and the Spirit just binded their hearts together, and they launched a missional campaign that transformed the entire world. And they continued this prayer gathering for a hundred years. Everyone was, someone was praying for a hundred years straight. Someone from their congregation was praying for a hundred years straight. And they, at times, they even sold themselves into slavery so they could witness and minister the gospel to the slaves in the Caribbean. And it was this small band of people in prayer that loved Christ Change the world. One author writes, Never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. We're a small group of people. And I've had this conviction about corporate prayer and that as a congregation we need to pray more. And so I'm going to encourage you the last Sunday of each month just to stay after, it's just a half hour. We're just going to pray together as a congregation. You don't have to come together and be like, hey, I, I don't know what to say. I'm not asking you to say anything. But there's fruit in corporate prayer. Here's the thing as I, as I conclude. The Christian life is meant to be this feast of joy centered on Christ that transcends the circumstances of this life. And it's unexplainable. And some of you might just be sitting here going, well, Paul's joyful. He's just crazy. That's his problem. He's like psychologically deranged because he's in prison. He's, he's that joyful. And I would say he's not psychologically deranged, but he's crazy for sure. He's crazy in love with Christ. That's where his joy stems from. And I'll be honest with you, I, I want this joy. I read this and I say, I want this joy. And it challenges me. And I, and I want this joy for us as a congregation. And maybe this is challenging you. And so I just want to conclude by just doing what Paul did. I just want to pray. I just want to pray this. As I, as, as I conclude this, I just want to pray what Paul just prayed. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I, and I don't want you just to listen to my voice. I want you to join with me silently as I pray this. Because this is a corporate prayer. So let us pray. Father, we come to you right now and I pray for this unexplainable joy in Christ. I pray that as a congregation, we'd be a congregation that loves one another. I pray that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth and insight 
of that love would be made clear for us. I pray that we get over ourselves and embrace you so that we can embrace one another. I pray that you would give us the wisdom to discern what is best. Best in our lives through the things of Christ to live life together in Christ. So that as a congregation, we could be blameless on the day of Christ. When you return, I pray that we would pursue holiness together, pursue transformation into Christ's likeness together. I pray that we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness, the righteousness that comes through your Holy Spirit and that would exude to one another. I pray that walls would be broken down, fears would be diminished, because through those valleys and when we reach the mountaintops of those, those fears, it's unexplainable joy in Christ. I pray that we would be slaves of Christ as a congregation. I pray that we would do this for the glory and the praise of your name. Amen.